I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. That's the second time it's gone off. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Oh, my David here. Hi, Kieran. Hello there. Kieran Murphy's here also with Kenny. Hey, Hi, how are you doing? Good I think we you. took opposing approaches, uh, approaches last night, Ken, to watching the Conor McGregor fight. Mm-hmm. Like a normal human being, I recorded it and watched it first thing this morning. But you heroically, I should say, stayed up till 5am on a Monday morning to watch Conor McGregor stop, to watch, sorry, the Irish Muhammad Ali stop Dennis Seaver in the second round of Boston? Well, actually, I stayed up till about 6 a.m. Um, I just had some other things that I need to get done. So, things which arguably I should have done at some earlier point. Well, one of those things was to read the book that we're doing a piece on today as well. So, we'll get to that. You were you were working away, Ken, like, like no man's business. I was. Um, and yeah, and, and I suppose Conor McGregor's fight was a, was a good way to end that end that process. Well, you had to face the wrath of Irish UFC fans, who are quite a protective bunch, we should say, when you criticised his performance last time. You had to be impressed this time. He took his man out early second round. Well, it wasn't so much criticising his performance last time, it was criticising the whole occasion, which was completely bereft of uh, drama. I mean, he was fighting against a guy who was obviously a complete no-hoper. Um, he, he, he knocked him out almost immediately. I was, without an apparent punch. <laughs> without an apparent punch making contact. A few thrown, but I, I didn't really see the concussive impact. This uh, this time, it uh, was a pretty impressive performance, you have yeah. to say. Although I would have my own, my reservations, again, about the quality of, of the opponent. Yeah, this man, ra- ranked in the top ten. I'd like to... I don't know uh, what's going on in that top ten, Owen. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, Dennis Seaver looked as though he might have been a couple of years past his best. Uh, I, I would have to say you said on Twitter last night that he said he looked he, you said that he looks old enough to have fought on the Eastern Front well that's because Conor McGregor uh, Conor McGregor had to apologise for labelling his opponent a Nazi uh, he, he he said this in his, his usual pre-match fight talk obviously Seaver is of, of German uh, origin so uh, the appropriate thing to throw at him was Nazi oh no that's not appropriate a lot of people are offended by that Conor McGregor did apologise he said the problem was that uh, other people were drawn into that. Other people were, you know, I don't care about my opponent. 
I'll say anything about him. I'll treat him as I please. He's another blank face, he said before the fight. Another blank, another blank face, you know, another uh, well-stuffed pair of shorts. <laughs> uh, he was wearing a sort of pair of Bermuda shorts, uh, Dennis Seaver. He issued the um, kind of uh, clinging lycra option, uh, beloved mm -hmm. of, of many of the younger UFC fighters. Maybe it's a generational thing. Yeah, we were back in, the, back in the 30s. Uh, you, didn't, you just didn't really wear that kind of that kind of garment wasn't considered decent we were promised before the fight that Sieber was going to bring a new style a style that hadn't been faced by Conor McGregor yet in his UFC career we didn't see that we saw him doing uh, just a slightly better version of what the previous opponents had done that was largely plant his feet and start trading blows with Conor McGregor which didn't really work out too well no, for the, him. the main the, the main difference I think between him and the previous opponent was that he was able to absorb more uh, punishment because mm -hmm. I mean he obviously did take quite a lot just you know I mean he, he, obviously he was in a quite bad condition by the end of the fight I thought McGregor did his part brilliantly I must say the, the whole night was very Conor McGregory he dominates the fight takes his opponent out and then come the theatrics and uh, people may, may well not have seen this it was on a ridiculous hour of the morning on BT Sport he immediately vaults out of the octagon after winning the fight scatters everyone in the front row just to get in the face of the champion Jose Aldo who McGregor's going to fight next for the title gets back in the octagon then to be interviewed by Joe Rogan throws a few F-bombs in there when asked about Aldo uh, who was then who, he, Aldo was actually supposed to be brought into the octagon after the fight just to go full WWE mode on it but mm. somebody decided it's probably better for, maybe for McGregor's own sake to just, just calm it a little bit at this point. We've hyped it up. You can't actually possibly hype a fight any further than we've just hyped this fight which should happen in a few months' time. Mm. So let's maybe not put them face-to-face -face in the ring after what's just happened. Everybody's he's obviously reaching a new level of promotion in the US and clearly the UFC are going after this big time. I mean, I was watching the NFC Championship game, Irf, I think you mm. were as well. Seattle well. Seahawks yeah, against Green Bay Packers. Winner goes to the Super Bowl. This is as big a game outside of the Super Bowl. But some say it's, it's, it's an even bigger game in its way. Uh, the actual honour of winning your division and getting to the Super Bowl. Up pops Conor McGregor promoting the fight on Fox Sports, which is going to be on the same station a little bit later on. Not just during an ad break. This is essentially during live play. They cut mm. from uh, uh, in-between plays. Joe Buck, the esteemed commentator, starts banging on about the Irish Muhammad Ali and then McGregor delivers a piece to camera. Yeah, I know, and it it you know you you've had a look at the viewing figures there, and we don't have them yet for uh, yesterday's game. Fifty six million last year watched the equivalent game, and this was one of the best games uh, played in the last ten years. So you, you can say at least fifty six million people were watching this. Um, it's fair to assume so. That's the kind of market you're aiming at, which is absolutely insane. Now the I I I, I couldn't really understand why they did this. I mean, there's more than enough Conor McGregor sound bites that you could be playing but he actually read this out in a really it, it didn't do him any favours it was quite a, it's quite a stilted piece to camera you know watch the NFC championship game and then watch me fight after it didn't quite bring out what the UFC have been promoting in Conor McGregor in terms of the yeah. sort of uh, the showman yeah yeah not not anything close to it to be honest mm -hmm. but uh, yeah I mean it's that, I mean the numbers you're talking about there are like giddying you know 56 million 60 million people that you're and the, you know it's a, like and if, and if, there's a very specific reason why the UFC are advertising heavily in the middle of an NFL game. It's because they think the market watching the NFL will watch a big UFC fight. You know, are, are would be well disposed to watching uh, UFC. So it's not a it's a relatively captive audience of 56 million people you're talking about there, which is <laughs> pretty insane. I'll tell you one group which seemed to lose interest a little bit as the night progressed. Ken mm. uh, were Conor McGregor's, McGregor's hometown fans. They, they go, "This is the scene in O'Connell Street in Dublin." They showed these lads <laughs> in a boozer. <laughs> half of them seemed to fall asleep by the time the and the other half had gone home because the boozer was not 
by any means uh, packed to the rafters. Yep. Uh, I suppose it was uh, nearly six o'clock mm-hmm. in the morning. Um, frankly, I'm surprised they were they were open at all. So what we're saying in summary, an extraordinary, another extraordinary event. Or this one probably more so. Actually, I, I thought it was a few for, levels up. For anyone who, we before. talked about the movie Foxcatcher last week, and for anyone who wondered what it might have been like in a movie Foxcatcher if Channing Tatum actually had a bout against the Steve Carell character, we got to see it last night, <laughs> and uh, and it was a pretty decisive win for for Channing Tatum. I'd like to see how. Billy Vunapola would react to Conor McGregor's in-your-face style of winding up an opponent because it doesn't sound like it takes much to raise this guy's hackles. He was he laid waste to Munster for Saracens on Saturday and afterwards was asked, where did you get the motivation to play so aggressively? And he said, well, one of their players said in the build-up, and I was thinking, oh, geez, I miss a lot. I was actually away for it. I miss a lot of build-up this. What Munster player was shooting their mouth off about Saracens? One of their players said in the build-up that Europe is where they turn it on. And that was enough for Billy Vunapola to decide, I'm going to kick the crap out of all these, any Munster player that comes that's anywhere near it, me. Yeah, that's it. Didn't seem it, too incendiary, really. It's not really. that personalised. It's not what you'd call a personalised attack on the, the good character of Billy Vunapola. Or there. even his brother, or any of the any of his teammates. But he, he took it as a slight and he managed to turn in a man-of-match performance. We'll talk to Jerry Thorny and Shane Horgan about Munster and their elimination from Europe very shortly. And later, Ken, we're going to chat to Anna Kareen about her William Hill Sports Book of the Year which was, it's called Night Game, Sex, Power and a Journey into the Dark Heart of Sport. It won the esteemed award there last year. You've been reading this one and it's received a lot of praise. It delves into pr- pretty dark, pretty complex subjects. You enjoy it's a it? really good book, yeah. I don't know if enjoy is the right term, but but you found it. No, it's, I, it's, it's, it's brilliant, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's essentially it's structured around an account of a rape trial. Uh, that, uh, in Anna Australia. Queen, in Australia, yeah. It's Anna Queen's covering this. Um... Uh, essentially, I, I'm not going to go into the details of the rape trial. You should you should kind of read it and, and check it out for yourself. But what I'm but you know it, it sort of takes this as a jumping off point for an exploration of this kind of um, uh, macho uh, culture of a lot of elite team sports. I mean, she's mainly talking about Aussie rules and rugby league. I mean, she's she's from Melbourne, and you know the trial is in Melbourne. Um, and this is this is kind of where a lot of it is, but but it's it's kind of the same. I think for almost all elite team sports, you've got some of a lot of the same um, group dynamics that she kind of goes into in this are are the same across various sports, and it's honestly fascinating. Some of it is jaw dropping, you know. I mean, this it's a comp- as a compendium of of uh, infamy, you know. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of like nasty little anecdotes in this book. I mean, stuff that will really kind of but you know i think that what it is also is it's really it's a very non-judgmental very non-sanctimonious look at something which is poorly understood not sanctimonious enough for some people i, I know she's been seen as anti-feminist in some quarters but but equally well, a, a, as a, a anti-sport maybe by in, in other quarters which is something we'll talk yeah, about yeah which 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 i think is totally is totally wrong uh, really if 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 you were to read the book you wouldn't you wouldn't think that she was either of, of those things. But I suppose it is, you know, you talk when you get into issues of, you know, I mean, we've, we've seen it with the Chad Evans mm. case, you know, the, the whole question of rape is such a, it, you know, it can be quite complex. It's more complex, I think, than sometimes people are prepared to admit. But she, her approach to it is not to sort of pass judgment on either side. She just asks a lot of interesting questions and then goes about trying to, 
trying to answer them. So yeah, a really good book and I think, uh, you know, not surprising that it won a prize. Sounds great. We'll chat to Anna later. Shane Horgan and Jerry Thorny now are ready to go uh, to talk rugby. Jerry, thanks as always, first of all, for popping into the studio. It's a pleasure. Uh, plenty to talk about this week. Mm. Where does it start with the uh, with the bad news? And that's Munster out yeah. of Europe with a game to spare. Um, mm. We rarely get to talk about this. I mean, o- over the years, only the second time they haven't made the, the made it past the pill stage. Did you see this coming? Not that, not that scale. No. I mean, I said last week. I think that I didn't. I thought Saracens would win, yeah, and you had to make Saracens favourite. But with Munster, there's always hope. That hope went after about three or four minutes. I don't know. Um, I don't think any of us saw that the scale of that defeat. And I think that's the disappointing thing. There's no shame in going out of a group that contained three of the semi-finalists from the, each of the last two years. That's a product of the seeding system. They've had an horrendous injury list. But, you know, the, there appear to be budgetary constraints there, so they haven't been signing good players and uh, are the players like they used to sign in the past. And then um, to lose it by that scale, I mean, I don't know. Conor Murray obviously was a huge blow. Um, and and once Duncan Williams' first kick was charged down by Jim Hamilton, it seemed to send a ripple through the squad. And then there was the scrum carnage and they hardly fired a shot. They were just in the back foot. I suppose you could say that many a team would have conceded a bonus point and perhaps it was only Munster's reputation that stopped uh, Saracens really going for the juggler, that they were still taking shots at goal when 20 and 23 points ahead. And that lack of a bonus point could ultimately be the difference between them going through or not if they don't beat Clermont away. Yeah. Um, yeah well, I think they're being, being particularly cautious. Very, because it's Munster. It, yeah. But I think, you know what? I think Munster lost a lot of that aura uh, on Saturday. I really do. You know, I really thought they looked a little out of their depth, uh, completely outmuscled, um, overpowered up front, scrums, mauls, breakdown, and um, their skill sets really failed them under pressure. And uh, it's a non-vintage monster team. And when you think that JJ Hanron's going, and Paul O'Connell, that might have been conceivably his last ever really competitive, meaningful European Cup match. Um, it's worrying times the province starting next next weekend and for the rest of the season because so much of their fan base judge them by what they do in Europe not what they do in the Pro 12 Shane the aura has gone do you think? Um, it's certainly been tarnished you know and there the main issue with Munster I think and it's been here for a couple of seasons is that they go to out muscle teams and they try and put in a massive emotional performance and when they do that and they hit their straps and everything goes perfect they can almost beat any team they certainly beat any team in the Pro 12 um, and probably up to semi-final final stage in Europe I think that can carry them through and that's that's covered up a lot of the cracks in the skill deficit uh, of the team. They have been had this remarkable um, ability to pull emotional performances out whenever they've been asked, and especially in Europe. And you've got to take hats, your hat off to them uh, for that. That wasn't the case at the weekend. They went again to out-muscle, uh, to out-arm wrestle the Saracen side, which is very difficult to do. I actually thought that if they brought their top game they're they're really their most aggressive their most dynamic ball carrying their most focused game i thought i said last week i thought they could turn them over but they weren't at the races and when they didn't have that game they have nothing else and that's the problem especially when you look like when 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 they move away from having jj hanrahan at 12 i think that was you know something that could have been looked at because if they weren't going to get the arm wrestle then you get jj in there or you start him and as we saw from the opening, I suppose, 30 minutes against uh, Clermont, that you provide something else. And Munster at the moment don't have that. They haven't been looking to do something else. They've been relying on the passion, the spirit, the aggression of some really, really committed, but not necessarily hugely uh, skilled players. 
and it wasn't enough for them uh, this whole tournament really and certainly wasn't enough for them uh, at the weekend Well funny. I mean Rob Penny certainly seemed to be trying mm. to add new layers Shane when he was involved but I don't think you were ever quite convinced with what, what he was doing I'm just wondering do you think that what we've seen this season in Europe from Munster casts the Penny era in, in quite a positive light actually he was getting into the semi-final stage No I don't I don't actually I think he was doing the wrong thing with Munster there was, there's a somewhere in between and I think um, I think Anthony Foley is trying to find that place in between. He, if you look at what he's done this season, he rem- put him, mo- removed away from the from what Penny was doing, which was playing, uh, you know, asking players to do something that they weren't comfortable with and they weren't capable of doing, um, and he reverted ver- back to a very. Uh, one-dimensional game plan. I'm not saying that as a as a criticism. I think it was a smart move to do because I think you have to be, you know, rugby teams and especially new coaches have to base themselves on you know their primary uh, jobs that they want their uh, players to do. And Anthony Foley did that. Get your defence right. Get them doing the basic things, uh, carrying well, rooking well. Um, and uh, moving the ball around the right areas of the parks, and he was doing that. I think we saw uh, just before Christmas, and actually over the Christmas period to some degree, him trying to move that game on a bit. This game came too early for that. They didn't. They couldn't move the game on a bit. They reverted to you know very basic play, and their basic play wasn't good enough because it wasn't executed well enough. And when they don't execute well, um, then against a very powerful side that uh, Saracens are physically. They love that physical fight. Um, they weren't capable of that. That coupled with, actually, I thought their defence was incredibly tight around uh, Rook time. And that allowed for any sort of um, whiff on the game to, to, to give them the edges. And then some poor uh, decision-making on the corners as well really played into Saracens' hands. Jerry, just on that on the Rob Penny point there, because people have been saying, well, Rob Penny would probably be getting slaughtered if he'd returned two wins from five in it's Europe and played that rugby. It's a fair point. But, but, Shane, but Shane doesn't feel that it necessarily reflects any, any better on what Penny was well, trying to do. Penny for Penny's thoughts. It must, it must have been interesting to, for him to watch from afar um, Japan in a Munster jersey. He tweeted watching the game from afar and when you think that two semi-finals now doesn't look like a bad achievement, does it? And when you think of what they did to get there, I think they found that balance that Shane was talking about in their performance um, away to Harlequins in the quarterfinal two seasons ago with Paul O'Connell's return and they you know, they used their maul a lot more as, as their most potent weapon means of go forward that day. They tried to go wide early on and they fumbled it and you thought, here we go again. And then they reverted more to a Munster-type game and found the balance. They were excellent at home to Toulouse in the quarterfinals a year ago as well. And they were competitive against Claremont on Toulon, only lost by score away in both semi-finals. So they were highly credible on European Cup campaigns that had there been a two-legged semi-final, they would have been alive very much and you know got beaten by the draw to a large degree and to a degree got beaten by the draw this, this season. But you'd have to say that you know increasingly money talks in rugby. It's no different from football. And you know you see that when Conor Murray goes down. You see that you know, they, they've lost Dave Kilcoyne, Mike Sherry, Damien Varley from their front row and look what happened to their scrum. Uh, BJ both had a torrid time. And there's no, there's no great backup there. Stephen Archer's improved, but they don't have the strength and depth up front. They don't have the strength and depth at scrum half and various other places in the pitch. And now they're about to lose JJ Hanron, and they're not buying in the same quality of players as they used to bring in before. So that, just, I'm just saying, Shane, that, that money talks to a degree when you look compared. To, I think the but, Orange provinces are in somewhere uh, a different position. They can't. They're never going to be able to compete with the French teams or even the English teams, money wise. And look at the time when Munster was most successful 
successful and Leinster were most successful. It wasn't because they had an endless supply of money and they were buying in mm-hmm. players to win them a championship like some of the French teams and English teams are doing. That's not the case. No, they, they'll not. never be the but, case. But, so you have to have the players, indigenous players, that are playing at a certain level, that are highly skilled and are coming through. We rely on them and Munster will always rely on them and Leinster will always rely on them. And if they don't exist, neither team will win anything in Europe. Yes, you supplement them with top class overseas signings. That's becoming more difficult to do. That's what I'm but saying. But not impossible. Not yeah. impossible to do. And you, I, I don't know. I don't think it is. I, I don't think it's impossible. Well, I, I, I think, for example, I don't think, I think Leinster are the only Irish province left that have the budgetary power to remotely compete with the French clubs. And that is evidenced by the return of Johnny Sexton and the retention of Jamie Heaslip and Sean O'Brien. By contrast, Munster couldn't hold on to JJ Hanron, who went offered 150 sterling a year thereabouts by Northampton. And Are there you is that's the only reason that he didn't no, stay. No, no, no. I, 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 if he really wanted them, I think they would have freed up money for JJ Hanron. They did if in Anthony the end. Foley, Anthony Foley said, "We want you. We really want you. We rate you, and we think that you're, you know, contributing to our side. You're going to play. We really need you." I think they would have found the money. Munster would have found the money. RFU would have found the money. All, all I'm saying is, Shane, what I from what I know is they left the door ajar, and the original offer was way more than Munster had him on at the beginning but Munster did come back with a much improved financial offer which well, was also well, can I just finish Shane yeah, which, which was also a three year contract as opposed to a two yeah. all my sources all my sources in Munster tell me that it was very much a rugby decision he does not think he's going to replace Ian Keatley in the next 18 months or so he thinks he has a chance of replacing Stephen Mylar getting more game time at that half we've debated this last week and I would take your point that he might actually end up getting less game time but that was his rationale it was more a rugby decision than a financial decision which is worrying in itself as well I agree all I'm saying is Shane the days of getting the Christian Cullens and Doug Howlett of this world are gone and if Murad Boulijal or Bruce Craig now as well not just the friendship not just Boulijal or Jackie Lorenzetti at Racing Metro if um, Bruce Craig at Bath or, or, the, or Northampton with their marquee signings now come in and want a player Munster cannot compete. I don't know if Ulster can compete anymore. Leinster might, it seems, because they've got capital, the benefits of being a capital city club and maybe some more in the way of financial backing and so forth. But they're the only ones at the moment who look like they can for the time being. And it's really sad to see that there might be no Pro 12, no Celtic or Irish team in the quarters conceivably for the first time in the competition's history if Leinster don't win away to Wasps or Glasgow don't win away to Bath. But that's, I fear, could be important to things to come given that the new financial carve-up is going to be a three-way, a one-third split each, more money for the French and English clubs who are already bringing in more money with the advent of new television stations in effect that aren't available in Ireland. It's a question here Shane also why whatever about the the budgetary powers of the different provinces and who they can sign and and keep on the Munster just don't seem to be producing the players that they have done in the past this new group has been has been given a chance I guess and, 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 and certainly this season has failed to deliver. Yeah, it's I think that is the case. And and it's a concern for Munster because the player base isn't massive. What you had in Munster was a group of an absolute freak group through the noughties, the end of the nineties uh, the, uh, the and into the noughties. You had a freak group of players um, that played a lot of games and there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a huge amount of turnover. If you had that level of player again, that quality of player again, I think that um, Munster could compete and I do think Jerry that they could uh, supplement that team with um, with one or two marquee signings that I think they would be able to retain you see Leinster uh, have retained uh, the likes of Sean O'Brien and Jamie Heeson yes they're on good contracts but there was a big um, onus on them to stay because they wanted to achieve and that they're happy and comfortable in their environment that exists 
um, the same in Munster. And you've already made the, the point that um, JJ Hanrahan didn't leave, it left not because of a money issue. So that sort of undermines that to some degree. Um, but there isn't the quality of player coming through. Leinster are in a better position because of the structures and the amount of people they have playing the game. It makes things a lot easier for them. So it is a difficult uh, place for Munster to be. They're never going to be a team that buys in uh, like a whole squad like they do in France or in Saracens. People in Munster don't want that. Nobody in Ireland wants that. There are a few certainly don't want it. So it is about nurturing talent, finding it early and, and really trying to get them onto, on the team and hoping that a generation that is inspired by the last number, couple of generations of Munster rugby players starts coming through. Where do you guys see it in terms of Foley's management, Foley's coaching this season. Jerry, is he is this going to hit his reputation pretty hard that he couldn't get a Munster team through in his first year? Of course, yeah. Uh, but it would have hit Rob Penny's harder had he, Rob Penny been in the third year of his, his deal. Um, I think he has had some tactical coups along the way against Saracens, notably in, in the home game, in the two Leinster matches. Um, um, but there will now be quite... I think it's a coaching ticket being being all Indigenous. It hasn't been a good weekend for Indigenous coaching tickets when you think of what happened to Ulster as well. Um, but I think that, uh, I think they'll improve and they'll get better as a coaching ticket and I still think he's a very clever individual and I think he's, you know, I, th- I think he's, he's the man, right man for the job and I hope it comes through for him but he's come into the job at a very difficult time. Shane? Yeah, well, he needs to improve their skill set. And listen, that was was particularly poor level um, at the weekend. And those sometimes it can be almost infectious. We saw like players that don't make very many yeah. mistakes hardly ever make mistakes. So it's hard to judge their skill set on that. I don't think their back play is as good as it can be. I don't think their passing is as good as it can be. Um, if you look at the the, the coaching ticket. What you know, overall game plan wise, forward wise, conditioning wise, it looks good, it looks positive. I think they could have done with some outside influence when it comes to back play um, and um, manufacturing uh, moves and um, you know, individual skills. I think that could have been worth getting somebody from outside on board just for a fresh voice. Um, because there's a you know, when it's all the same. You know, from all the same country, there can be general. You know, there can be a sort of a, a common think, and it's it can be handy to have somebody outside of the province to bring in something different and to be challenging. Um, I think he got a, had a very very difficult group. It was a, a horrific group to get into. You know, at the start of it, I didn't expect them to get out. I did expect them to, you know, win all their home games, uh, and I probably expected them as well to uh, beat um, to do a little bit better, but. You know, at the start of the competition, I would have said that it was more likely than not that they wouldn't get out of that group. All right, let's talk Leinster, who will get out of their group if, in fact, they'll have a home quarter final if they win next weekend away to Wasps after the results of the weekend. At the weekend, I, sh- I should say, Shane, I was watching you on uh, on Sky covering the Leinster cast game. You seem really enthused. Obviously, nobody's expect- expecting a huge amount from this cast team arriving over to the RDS, but uh, you seem to be more focused on how well Leinster played. Best you've seen them play this season? Yeah, it was. But, but you know, what else can you do? You know, you can't. I can't judge how bad cast for it. I just think you know you think of how much Munster want to be in this competition and how much you know Connacht want to be in this competition and then you see cast they checked out of this competition after one game even if they lasted that long so uh, it's very hard to know you know how 
good the performance was. But without you know slipping the cliche, you can only actually play that the, the team that comes up against you. And Leicester did that very well. And you put a fifty points on any side, and it's impressive. Um, a couple of things for me there. You know, that it doesn't matter what team you're playing. If the ball is in front, it's a good pass. You know, if the ball is inside shoulder, it's a bad pass. And you know, more times than not, the ball was in front for for Leinster. Like. You know, I've said it many times, the barometer for Leinster is if they score, and many Irish sides if they score tr- tries off set piece. Um, the, the first couple of set pieces they had, one against the head, uh, a scrum, and they passed the ball out the line, absolutely beautiful. They were all 10, 15 metre passes right in front, running onto a pace, and then a little bit of um, an angle at the end. And that uh, break that was I think it was Luke Fitzgerald who ended up making the break that led to a line out which we saw was executed absolutely perfectly and um, the, uh, um, Dave Carney scored a try off really impressive stuff and that's impressive no matter uh, who you're playing against yes um, Kirkpatrick bit on Conan very easily you wouldn't expect that but it was really well synchronised his position was held and uh, hidden and he showed really good gas to get over the line a lot of positive things from Leinster. Um, I also thought that like we really saw a lot of young Leinster forwards really stepping up and playing well. And that try by Tyg Furlong, I thought, was mm-hmm. really interesting as well. All right, the uh, Castro defensive line was really elbowed all over the place and wasn't consistent. But we saw Madigan did a little wraparound with a perfect pod. I think it was Tyg Furlong was in it. I think um, who was it? Um, the uh, other Leinster um, back row was in it. And um, I think there was, there, who was it? There was one other on it. There was three in a little pod there. And it was exactly where they should be. Um, when they're not in a rook, the other the rook had been uh, had been resourced by backs, so they got onto this perfect pod and a left a um, left a, a loop around for Madigan, who then uh, gave the ball to Estrella on a fantastic line. Very impressed by Ty Furlong to keep alive and look for that ball that was dropped off inside, and he, he ended up getting the try. So, you know, very impressive uh, stuff from uh, the Leinster young Leinster uh, forwards as well. But again, impossible to tell. Um, against the Castro side that was just woeful yeah certainly Matt, you're, you're laughing along there Jerry. It, it is hard to judge but as, if you're judging Leinster alone would you be as impressed um, particularly going into the winner takes all game next weekend yeah I just feel a little bit sorry for Munster and Ulster they, they got Claremont and Toulon in their pool um, literally at the other end of the top 14 table and the two powerhouses in French rugby at the moment who are now unbeaten in about eight games and overlasting over three years against the Irish provinces all three of them um, Barconnet that is and you know Castro I think have shipped 37 points per game away from home this season I mean they didn't even look remotely interested the, the, the attempt to stop Sean Cronin scoring the bonus point try just before after, I mean, people look at it again I'm not sure whether Castro thought they were playing tip rugby or tag rugby but it certainly wasn't <laughs> rugby as we know it yeah. Um, but yeah as Shane says cliche young can beat what you beat in front of you it was much more precise um, for me a huge boon was the scrum God knows our Irish teams have had trouble in the scrum all season long. If you're an English coach, if you're Stuart Lancaster, you're looking at the Harlequins Leinster games, you're looking at the Munster Saracens games, you're thinking, right, let's go after the Irish scrum. And, you know, as we've had the, the Twickenham nightmare before and various other ones in the past. So for, for that front row to do what it did, when Marty Moore tied ahead and Michael Bennett loose head, I mean, you know, 
Michael Bent, the Munchman Nine, Michael Bent was going up against an Argentinian tighthead who played in five of the six rugby championship matches. Yeah, you know, and Marty Moore. It was great. To, I thought you have to say Matt O'Connor was vindicated in the selection of both Marty Moore to start and Tyke Furlan coming off the bench because Furlan does provide more impact off the bench than Mike Ross ever. But would he did do. seem quite bullish afterwards, O'Connor, just in the sense that he, he he sort of put it to the journalist. Listen, we had to play a certain way for those early rounds. We we had a lot of bodies down and we're just getting them back. We're just getting game time into everybody now. Well, there's no doubt we are where we need to be in the pool. You look at players like Jordy Murphy, Owen Redden, uh, Luke Fitzgerald, uh, Dave Carney. They're all looking so much sharper now after coming back from injury with a few games under their belt, and Marty Moore as well. And you know they were missing all those players, and they're still missing Keane Healy and Sean O'Brien. They've had an horrendous injury toll, as I've all stood has to be said. Um, but you know, sorry, Shane, go on. Yeah, no, I think one of the key indicators, and we're yet to find out the answer to this question is. Did Leinster show that level of ambition? Because one, they know they needed to get five tries. Yeah. Two, they knew they were playing against a, a massively inferior team. Or three, because they have everyone back on board and they're now, uh, it's the way they're going to proceed for the rest of the competition. Because if it's the first two and they revert back to the lack of ambition that they were showing earlier on in this competition, I don't think they'll progress any further. Um, they might get out of the group, but they won't. They certainly won't uh, get to a semi-final or a final. But if they do play with that ambition that they uh, showed at the weekend, then they've got a chance, and I, they've got a chance of even of winning the competition. Um, they won't win it if they go for the arm wrestle. They won't win it if they try and play the percentage and not um, and and really play that limited uh, mistake, but limited um, uh, ambition game plan. But if they go after teams, they do frighten you and. You know, that try for Cronin, yes, it was very weak tackling, but the tempo that Redden brought into the game is what Leinster need to do. And then that interaction, the continuity between forwards and backs was so impressive and something that we haven't seen from Leinster for a long time. Uh, maybe earlier in the season, possibly against one of the, the, the uh, I think it was Clinetti early on in the season, we saw a bit of that, but it had gone, it had gone from the game. If they can harness that ambition and continue to play with it, then you could saw the way the crowd got behind them and you saw the potential that they have. The individual player skill, I think, is there. All right, well, it sounds like Shane's going for a win away to us if they adopt uh, an adventurous enough game plan. Jerry, I don't think they're going to ha- play with that kind of ambition, obviously, because they were kicking penalties from in front of the post to the corners after scoring one try in the first quarter of the game. They're not going to do that. They're going to play much more cup rugby and they'd be mad to do otherwise away to Wasps. Um, they're playing a much better Wasp team than the one they met in October. I mean, both teams have come on hugely. Wasps have scored over 40 points in their two games at the Rico Arena. The move to Coventry seems to have just rejuvenated the club. Um, they've got real finishers. They've got real X-Factor at Scrum Half and Simpson in their outside three. Um, they're dangerous. They've got an excellent defence. They showed, I mean, they won that game against Harlequins with 30% possession in territory because of their defence. So it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a litmus test. And I, I hope you, I would agree with Shane, they have to play with more ambition if they want to be real contenders than they did in, say, the quarterfinal way to Toulon last year. You would hope, or last season, you would hope that's still ringing the ears of the coaching staff and they remember that. Um, and it's going to be a litmus test. It's going to tell us much, both in terms of the performance and the result. If Leinster win, they get a home quarterfinal. If Leinster get a losing bonus point, they probably get an away quarterfinal, which isn't going to be much use to them. And if they don't, if they go out, well, it's, it's a bit of a disaster for Irish rugby as well as them. So it'll tell us much in the heat of the hunt. Yes, I think they'll go through. Okay. And Jerry, win. Shane, great stuff as always. Thanks a million. Thanks a million. Cheers. In the final round again. And the A. Oh, what about that? Send him off. Send the 20 against off. Get him off the field. That was diabolical. 
is going to be sent off. He's going to be on the card. A gasp. Yeah, just to go back to Munster for a second, Murph, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, they actually took extraordinary measures to stay in this competition. There was a, a an image of this or a couple of pictures of this on BT Sport, mm. who came back at halftime, uh, about to start the second half, about to start the coverage of the second half of Munster's game in Saracens, and they showed the Munster team, the starting team, being put through their paces, as in shuttle runs, all this kind of stuff, like a yeah. second warm-up out in the field before the game, which looked a little bit odd. I don't think they were trying to make too big a deal about it, but I couldn't help but notice... BJ Bolton, but they don't name names here, Murph. Is this, is this before the game or at halftime? No, this is at halftime, before yeah. the second half, which is pretty rare. You don't normally see, yeah. see that happen with the starting team. BJ Bolton seemed to agree that it, it was it was rare mm. and probably should never happen again because he was either deliberately struggling to to keep pace or maybe needs a little bit more work in the conditioning. But Conserving his energy. Yes. Oh, and that's, that's he's, probably, he's probably thinking, why am I doing this? Yeah, Axel. I mean... <laughs> It's probably a question I would ask myself. It I did mean, look strange. It did, it did I mean, strange. yeah, we've already played a half of rugby. I'm about to play another half of rugby. I can't really see how this shuttle run is doing anything other than lowering my already dangerously low <laughs> energy levels. Yeah, with Billy Vunapola about to run at me yet again at the start of the second half. We've got the Irish Times Second Captain's Football podcast ready for your listening. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them up. What you doing down here, you shawny man? Well, we're not going to talk about David Ginola, Owen. You were away, I know, so it may have escaped your attention that he... Announced his intention to run for FIFA. I saw it pop up there on BBC World News, Ken. It turned out that he was. (laughs) I I don't want to say only doing it because he's getting paid 250 grand to to say he was doing it by uh, a bookie. Uh, but he is getting paid two hundred fifty grand, and right. possibly possibly more if the crowd-funded effort manages to collect all the the money that um, they're aiming to collect. Uh, he he did a press conference in which he revealed a, an utter lack of knowledge of anything to do with FIFA. For instance, can you name anybody in the FIFA executive committee? <laughs> so, so uh, what, you know, amusing as the story may be, we're not actually going to talk about it. Okay. In order to find out what we do talk about, you're going to have to tune in. Nah, we're going to talk a bit about Arsenal, uh, who obviously un- yeah. un- revealed a, a startling new face uh, over the weekend. And... Uh, a little bit about the January transfer window. All right, well, when you're looking around for a decent sports book to read, you could generally do worse than checking out the winners of the William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award, that, which started in the early 90s. Fever Pitch, Rough Ride, Football Against Enemy are among previous winners there. Now, the 2014 award went to a book called Night Games, Sex, Power and a Journey into the Dark Heart of Sport. It's an investigation. It's kind of hard to explain in, in really one or two sentences what the book actually is, and we're going to get into this now with the author, but... It, the, to put a ball, it's an investigation of the rape trial of a young Australian rules footballer, but also that's kind of interspersed with posing questions about the hyper-macho world of professional sports teams. We didn't get a chance to chat about this in depth 
late last year when a lot of the, the books were doing the rounds, but it seems particularly timely now, given the dominance of the Chet Evans story in the last few weeks. The author is Anna Crean, who joins us on the show. Anna, we've outlined what the, the book is about. Uh, quite a difficult subject matter, really. Have you, did you have any reservations about taking this on? Uh, yeah, I definitely had some reservations. Um, not enough to deter me, obviously. But, I mean, there were, it was a hard... It wasn't exactly... People weren't exactly opening their doors to speak to me. So that was a, definitely a tough uh, gig for me to investigate. Um, and a lot of players that I spoke to wanted to remain anonymous or decided to take their quotes off the record and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was a hard book to uh, to complete. I read uh, a quote from you somewhere where you said, I have no friends on this one, which I took to mean maybe that the, <laughs> you're possibly seen as anti-sport uh, by one section, <laughs> anti anti-feminist by another section of society. Yeah, I guess so. But, I mean, I think anyone who reads... I mean, I... I think I'm not convinced people who have declared themselves my enemy have really read the book um, because it's a pretty honest book. Uh, and I pretty much state up front that I, I'm a great lover of sport myself. I, I, I'm very athletic. I play sport a lot. Um, and the last thing I want to be is this sort of shrill, moral, high ground voice you know, bringing down my foot on sport. So I, I think that that's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a bad perception and it's, it's probably no one's read between the lines. And of the feminists who have, who have sort of been quite outraged at me, there's been a few articles, one which said that I promoted violence against women. Um, I think they're just maybe a little bit... Um, I was about to say illiterate, but that's rude. Um, I just think that maybe they haven't really understood my nuance or um, understood what I'm trying to do, which is which is speak not to feminists in universities and uh, not to people who you know have have all their credentials in in sexual politics. I want to speak to people who are actually out there on the ground, um, you know, young footballers and young women who are. Who, who may be running into these guys. A lot of the book, Anna, is about um, the sort of things that goes on, the sort of things that go on in, in locker rooms, the kind of um, group dynamics and the psychology of, of this situation. You, you use a line uh, towards the end of the book from Robert Lipside about how jock culture is a distortion of what sport is really all about. Could you explain what you mean by that? Or what, what you think Lipside means by it, why you used it? Yeah, well, I guess that's, um, that kind of basically sort of reiterates what I was saying before, is the fact that I love sport, but it's it's um, the jock culture that's distorted sport, that's um, sort of polluted the institution of sport in a way by this kind of um, creating these really exclusive, tightly knitted... In, um, largely male institutions that um, sort of get their kicks out of humiliating one another and humiliating sort of what they see as lesser beings that come into their radar. So, you know, a lone female, um, you know, getting pranked by these, you know, a bunch of guys who have, who have, you know, been bonded really well together in order to play a good game on the field, but 
just can't let go of that bond once they're off the field. So I guess that's sort of it's it's people using sport to 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 exploit um, individuals. You mentioned pranks there. I mean, that's something that you talk about, the difference between satirical pranks and uh, vindictive pranks. Uh, mm. uh, what, what, what's the distinction there? Uh, well, again, I sort of wanted to point out that, I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite a fan of pranks. I like pranks. I think they're funny, and, and, especially, and especially when they're soft and they're just, um, they're just aimed at getting a laugh, not necessarily making the pranker feel more powerful and more, uh, like, just a better person. Um, and I guess these vindictive pranks, are what I discovered in my book was that while there were some really harmless pranks sort of which would happen, you know, during training and um, to other different players, like they'd fill each other's cars up with sawdust or they'd hide each other's car keys and silly little pranks that were no big deal, um, these would, they would escalate and become more sinister. Um, so, say, after playing a game, that they'll decide that they'll prank a girl that they managed to hook up with and one player would have sex with her and, and you know, have five of his mates hiding in the bathroom while that was happening. And, and that was a funny prank, but they didn't see the difference between that prank and, you know, their prank during training. Well, this is something that you you, you even mentioned there in your, one of your previous answers, Anna, the bond that exists between a team on the field and how that trans- transfers off the field. Do you see a link between what happens on the field, how a team becomes a, a, whatever a team is supposed to be, and then th- this sort of stuff that can happen off the field? Yeah, definitely. Um, and one reviewer of my book wrote this great line of how do you separate uh, the magic from the poison? And the magic being that, you know, you tightly bond a team um, and you can get a really, you know, these magic moments in sport where, you know, one one player will pass to another player and they're not even looking at each other, but they're aware of the pass and they take it. Um, that's magic and that's, that's a bonded, closely knitted team. Um, take it off the field and that bond can become, quite, again, quite sinister and malicious, especially if someone who's not um, part of that bond um, wanders into the room um, again. You know, a lone female or a couple of women. Um, they they might not realise at first, but they might and they might feel like they're having a great time all together and everyone's on equal ground. But as the night wears on and there's you know the tension and uh, escalates, I think many women realise by the end of the night that they most certainly weren't part of the team. There are a lot of sports people and sportsmen who obviously don't get involved in this kind of thing. So why is it that that bond would necessarily be um, that certain players are susceptible to to going down that route and others aren't? I mean, I guess that's just human nature. Some people act differently in, in, in a team environment than others. Yeah, definitely. And of course, of course, there are many players who are not going to, um, who are not going to, you know, assault a female, let alone degrade or, or humiliate her um, just to be part of the team. But I, I do think those attitudes would vary from club to club. I think certain clubs are better behaved than others. And I think certain clubs um, actually 
uh, encourage uh, young men to be individuals, encourage them to have pursuits that aren't just sport. Um, and then there are other clubs who think that there is only one way to create a good team and is that match to have them all pretty much a single organism and completely tightly knit and what happens on the footy trip stays on the footy trip. Those kind of sayings go with all that. Your book, Anna, is mainly about Australian rules football and, and rugby league in Australia, but I was struck reading it uh, how for almost every sort of scandal or every kind of, even the, the anecdotes, I can mm. think of an equivalent in English football. Something quite mm. similar has happened, you know, <clears throat> same kind of same kind of scandals, racism, things or violence, you know, bullying. Yeah. Uh, there was even a guy who slept with a teammate's wife and that was a bigger scandal than almost any of the other terrible things that he'd done. You know, it, yeah. it got the teammates more annoyed than, than anything. But, you know, th- okay. this this um, this issue of the, the, the kind of popularity of what they euphemistically or will we'll call in polite circles group sex is... May appear mystifying to people who aren't uh, who aren't directly involved in sport, but it's clearly uh, you know hugely prevalent within the culture of these kind of elite uh, team sports. What do you mm. think? I mean, a lot of your book is trying to get to grips with what you know. Where do you think that sort of compulsion comes from? Why why is there this sense of you know let's all get together and have sex with one girl? Yeah, yeah, it's a really um, bewildering perplexing question um yeah why there was and, and and also females i spoke to and females have reported on cases that i who i hadn't spoken to um would often sort of feel as though when when a guy when one a teammate would say well yeah my mate's here too and it, a girl would almost be made to feel bad that she wasn't sharing that you know they, they, everything that they had, they had to share with their teammates. There was that sort of feeling. But I also think it was, um, uh, there was, there's a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of teasing in Australia. It was like, oh, obviously, if these guys are all having sex with the one woman, they really just don't, the woman's just in the room as an excuse for their latent homosexuality, which I don't really think is true. I don't think this is, a woman is there to cover up, you know, this idea that they all actually want to have sex with one another. I think, but I think the woman really is a vessel. I don't think it's, you know, she. I don't think she's a beard of sorts, um, but I think she's there, again, to promote bonding, um, again, for the men to pr- to perform for one another and to really, I guess, really stamp their masculinity on each other. Um, and there were times when I wondered if perhaps they thought it was necessary because, they actually might, well, it's hard to explain, but I don't really know how it is on the field um, with you guys, but there are some really lovely, tender moments in football when, you know, one man will help another man up and they'll ruffle another man's hair when he gets a goal. And there is actually, there's obviously a real pure, unadulterated joy in one another's company. And I think that's really beautiful and I think that's a really lovely side of sport. But sometimes I found myself wondering if this idea of having sex in front of each other with one woman, it was a sense of just reminding each other who they all were, that they were men and that they were hetero and um, 
and you know they were they're all the more glorified to each other for it. Another thing that you talk about is is the fact which you kind of began to uh, realize, which is that a lot of men it turns out have a pretty poor grasp of what actually constitutes rape. And there's a story in mm. there about how um, one of the uh, one of the clubs tries to sort of explain to its players or, or has, has somebody come in who's going to explain to the players, okay, uh, and shows them two videos which, to, which mm. they have, to which they have very different responses. Maybe you could explain what, what happened on that occasion. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, this is a young, a young group of guys uh, rugby league players who were shown this video. And the first video um, was footage of a woman um, who, who'd stumbled in a house with two, two players and they're all drinking and cheersing each other and having fun and giggling. And then the woman went into the bedroom with one of the guys and obviously had sex with him. And then one of the guys snuck out of that bedroom and, and whispered to his mate to go in and pretend to be him and have a go. And the next scene is her stumbling out of the bedroom, screaming and crying and saying, I thought it was you. And all the young players were asked, you know, how they saw that footage and how they saw that scene and, you know, how what they felt about the woman. And a lot of their responses were, oh, well, she was flirting with both of them. What did she expect? And um, she went home with both of them, which is... You know, that's just not normal. It's not really a normal perception. I mean, a lot of people, you you have fun in groups all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have sex with all of them. It means that you're all enjoying each other's company and you're getting drunker. And usually by the end of the night, if you're lucky, you get to choose one of them. You're not just necessarily choosing all of them. But the next uh, uh, film for them to watch was, you know, two men getting drunk together, having lots of fun, and one of the men getting particularly drunk and the other man helping him back to his own house and then having sex with him. And then that man, you know, woke up the next morning and, you know, he was obviously completely horrified about what happened to him and this, you know, this sort of male angst music track started playing and he stumbled out of the apartment and he quickly called the number of a sex clinic, STD clinic, you know, that's what you do, apparently. And the <laughs> the men, the young men who were watching this, they were all pretty much close to tears. They were all completely devastated by this. Um, and one boy said, oh, he never asked for that, and he never asked for that. Um, which was really, it was, the entire scene is strange because they're trying to educate these boys about rape, and I guess there's this idea that the only way that they can really drive home what rape is is to show them um, uh, an example of mm. homosexual rape um, as opposed to, um, and using their sort of homophobia is to try and get create empathy for the female, which didn't happen, obviously. It was a really odd scene. Yeah. I mean, what did you guys think that from your perspective, from your side of the world? Well, I mean, it was it was kind of a comical scene. I mean, the, the instructor then sort of says to them, "Well, has anybody thought there might be kind of a double standard at work here?" And and there's sort of, uh, I think it's beginning to dawn on a few of them that maybe the situations are actually quite similar. 
But you mentioned yeah. uh, you mentioned Anna, empathy for the female, I and mean, this is something that uh, uh, for the woman and for the victim in some of these cases. Um, did you get to speak to many uh, victims yourself, many women uh, about, who've actually been involved in in these sort of situations? Not a hell of a lot, um, and in a way, this that was you know that was a real problem for me. And it was one of um and in the main trial that I covered, I couldn't speak to um, the female complainant. Uh, she wouldn't speak to me, despite you know I had a lot of attempts to try and speak to her. And there were quite there were, that was a couple of the attacks that I got from um, I guess my feminist critiques being that you know if because I didn't get to speak to her, I shouldn't have written the book. Um, which I think is really strange. And I also think that's sort of potentially, you know, a real part of the problem is that uh, this silent voice, um, you know, the females not having their voice. And then when a female tries to write a book about this, because a woman won't speak to her, the female author is told that she shouldn't have written the book, which is just like this ridiculous, um, you know, cascading event of well here we are again you're telling us all to be quiet about this scenario these situations so um no i didn't get to speak to many females i spoke to a couple um all of whom didn't want their name to be used um and i guess there's that sense of shame and stigma which is you know which i just found i just think it shouldn't that shame and stigma shouldn't be there. I think the shame should be on the men's shoulders. Yeah, I, 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 I guess you can see from the point of view of uh, of the victim in a case like this. I mean, even you see with the the Chad Evans case in the UK recently that that uh, victim obviously has been uh, identified by a number of people uh, on on social media. Mm-hmm. Has apparently had to move house on a number of occasions. So it, it's, maybe it's it's quite understandable why. Uh, yeah. A woman wouldn't want to go public with you know with her story. In you, you, I mean, this is a book you actually suggest that maybe, uh, and I get the feeling because you're a little bit sensitive when you when you do it that maybe this is sort of a controversial suggestion to make that <laughs> that restorative um, justice might have a part to play here. In other words, well, you'd explain it better than me, but 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 a case in which the in which the uh, complainant and defendant actually come face to face and kind of. Uh, there's there's a mediation with both of them present as opposed to the current system which involves uh, usually a guy in court and a and a woman who's who's not present giving evidence via via video you, why do you think that that might actually be something which might might be better than what we now have yeah i think that i really really do believe that needs restorative justice system needs to be an alternative i think to think i don't think it's going to replace it can't replace everything and you know, there are many rape cases where, which belong in the criminal justice system and where it is absolutely necessary for the complainant to be protected from, you know, the attacker, alleged attacker. But I think in um, many scenarios, there needs to be an alternative and restorative justice would be a good way to go about it. Um, it's particularly in the trial I was covering... It really was obvious to me that no one, be it the complainant or the um, uh, the accused, uh, neither of them got any smarter. They, there was no progress made with the trial for them to reach um, a deeper truth, 
um, for the night to reveal itself to either of them. And both of them had real um, flaws in their stories, um, not just uh, the male who was accused of rape, but um, the complainant did as well. And not, and because there's such a, um, you know, because all of those kind of things are danced around and, you know, there's the performance of court and prosecuting and defending, those flaws are never uh, tackled and they're never looked at uh, properly. Um, so no one really ends up being very, no one really comes out the other end smarter. And in most rape trials, you, you, you're highly, a conviction at the other end is, you know, it's just highly unlikely. So I think a restorative justice process would be really useful to a lot of people. And I don't know uh, how closely you followed the Chad Evans story, um, if you followed closely enough to answer the question that a lot of people have been asking about whether or not this guy deserves, has served his time and deserves another chance in football, a chance that he's, it doesn't look like he's going to get anymore. Yeah, I know I definitely have followed it quite closely. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a it's it's potentially a tough question in that, you know, you know, man man woman does time they should be able to get on with their lives once they've left the once they've left prison. But in the case of Chet Evans, um, and in many people's case, who when it becomes a sexual crime, uh, I don't really think he has done his time. Not mentally, I he uh, it's. There has been no, I don't, I, for me, I haven't detected any humility. And I also think that there was a sense of, this, this only came to people's attention when once a rape charge, you know, was, was, was aired, uh, which means that the degrading and humiliating way in which the female was treated, was treated would never, otherwise have never seen the light of day. And, Whilst Chet Evans doesn't need to admit that there was, you know, necessarily a rape, I think he needs to admit that there was um, one woman was treated really badly and horribly and inhumanely, and you know, she, she was in his hands and he treated her incredibly badly, and he hasn't done that, and it's sad because it seems to me that he's continuing to deflect responsibility. For the situation, um, you know, it's it's everyone else's fault that he's not going to keep playing. It's um, the sponsor's fault that he's not going to keep playing. It's the public's fault. It's actually his fault that he's not going to keep playing uh, football because if he had taken responsibility, if he did look head on at this, the events that occurred that night, if he looked deep inside himself, he would, you know, be able to come to terms with what happened and see that he, um, you know, was was badly behaved and really treated a person really badly and left her scarred whether he raped her or not. And he could be a great role model. He could, if he embraced that and started talking about it and started talking to other players and young players and, and young fans about rape and the nuances of rape and how how easy it is to find yourself um in you know the bad guy's shoes, as he did, he would be a great person to have on the field. But at the moment, he's, the only the only real regret he's shown is cheating on his girlfriend, which hasn't doesn't really seem to have counted much anyway. 
All right. Well, listen, Anna, the book is called Night Game, Sex, Power and a Journey into the Dark Heart of Sport. It's been uh, really fascinating and interesting talking to you today. So thanks so much for chatting to us. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. I hope you uh, enjoyed that that chat there. And obviously, as you were saying, Ken, uh, in terms of the, the book itself, I mean, Anna ten, seem, that poses a lot of questions, tries to answer them. And, and um, similarly, in the interview, there, there, are some, there are some questions that aren't necessarily easily answered. But just on, at the end there, I thought that was quite an interesting take on the Chet Evans story yeah, uh, that I hadn't necessarily heard articulated that well before. No, I haven't heard anyone actually say that before, that actually Chet Evans has an opportunity to do something good, to sort of make something good out of this disaster that happened. It's always either he apologises, he doesn't apologise, he gets accepted, he doesn't get accepted. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe it's a bit utopian, but the the idea there here is that, well, you know, if he had it, some, not, not just apologise, but actually go out there and do something and, and actually send some sort of a message as, uh, you know, as reformed people in, in, in different walks of life have done in the past, then that could happen. I mean, it doesn't look like that is what's going to happen, but that's the only way that, that Anna sees that something like that could really be of any benefit to, to football, to sport, maybe to society. Yeah, because usually these these situations really leave everybody um, everybody feeling worse about it, you know? I mean, that's that seems to be the, that's the case in, in the trial and I've spoken in numerous other examples um, that she cites. I mean, it is amazing, but this, the the book has got so much in it. Um, it's it's a it's about the relationships between men and women, you know, to 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 great extent. You know, I mean, sport happens to be the arena which is happening. I just want to read one thing from it, which is just uh, I mean, <laughs> this is she she's talking a lot about the way in which that women are kind of treated as second class citizens by sport, Um obviously. Uh, you know they're 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 not on the field. They're not in the boardroom usually. Um, they're not in the sort of top echelons of power in in the in sport. Now, uh, you do sometimes find in in Australia she's seen efforts being made to sort of redress the balance. And she quotes an ad. Um, <laughs> this is the NRL, the the rugby league. Um, to the women in the league, we salute you. This is an ad. This is recent. <laughs> this is, yeah, it's not too long ago. When is it? Okay, no, uh, it's 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 modern era. We're talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a case of um, it's 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 a sort of we appreciate the contribution. Um, so the melodic tinkling of a piano, a promotional photo shows selfless mothers painting white boundary lines in the oval, pumping up a football, stapling documents, hauling boxes of trophies from their cars, opening the cafeteria, and attending to a player's leg injury. Over the images, a deep, gravelly male voice says. This is dedicated to the unsung heroes who ask for nothing and give everything. You are the guardian angels, the gatekeepers, and the champion's champion, carrying the weight of thankless tasks with selfless hearts. You are the wind beneath our winners, the goddesses of war and peace, the patron saints of the sideline, the canteen queens who wear a beanie like a crown. You are the dream makers. Camera flashes to the little boy wearing footy jumper, who understand that greatness is not born, it is earned and easily squandered. You sculpt lives of greatness out of grass and dirt and mud. You don't seek fame or glory, but know this. Our victories are your victories. Oh, my God. So, so, a lot done, more to do. <laughs> Murph, before we go, as part of my holiday last week, I spent a bit of time in your hometown of Galway. Okay. And I know you like to be kept abreast of anything going on what in that were, town. What were, they, what were they talking about? Well, I'll what tell you what they were talking about, Murph. The street humming with... I was in a, I was in a pub, right? A few, yeah. a few middle-aged... I'm being generous there. A few middle-aged to elderly gentlemen okay. yeah. were sitting around half... You know, you, know how, you know how it is in these kind of bars. They were half watching the BBC's build-up to an FA Cup match on yeah. a okay, small screen there. One yeah. of them, they're, they're kind of looking at one of them says, ab- abstractedly, that's Alan Shearer, isn't it? And the other guy says, yeah, yeah, that's, that's Shearer there. 
first guy goes, hasn't got much hair left, has he? A brief pause, nobody really knows what to say, and then the, the second guy goes... Self-explanatory, what is that? Yeah, the second guy goes, I was a super player, though. <laughs> and they both agree wholeheartedly that Alan Shearer has lost a lot of hair but was a super player yeah I, it's difficult to disagree with either of those points I mean I, I think that they're both very much they're they're up there they're enshrined really in folklore aren't they one that he's bald and two that he was a bloody good goal scorer in his day we'll leave it there keep an eye out for Donald O'Cusack's documentary on RT1 tonight it's called Coming Out of the Curve examining attitudes towards homosexuality in Ireland and abroad we spoke to Donald Logue about this subject in a sporting context on TV last year and he was absolutely fascinating on it so I'd have high hopes for this programme I think it's 25 to 10 on RT1 tonight and in the meantime we'll take our leave we've got the football podcast out there ready for you to listen to we'll chat again later in the week thanks Kieran. thank you Owen thank you Ken thanks thank you, Kieran. Kieran. thank you Owen. thanks for listening take care What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.